Today we're going to be looking at Mark 10, verses 13 through 45, on our need and his suffering. And they were bringing children to him that he, that's Jesus, might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, but in the, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with, baptism, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to get 
indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Word of God. Amen. I don't go to church, but I am a good person. Have you heard that? Yeah. I talk with a lot of people who aren't um, interested in church or not interested in, in Jesus. They don't see a need for Jesus. And that's what I hear a lot. I, I hear a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I don't go to church, but I, I am a good person. And, and what I've realized is that a lot of people do have a desire to be a good person. People do really, there, there's something in us that wants to be good. And I think there's something in each of us that wants to be fulfilled. We want to live a fulfilling life. We, we want meaning and significance throughout our life. But what I've realized about people is their view of that is, is all messed up. I mean, our view of that gets all messed up. Um, we want to be good people, but we tend to define what good is by who we already are. And so I'm a good person just because I'm me. And those things that I do that aren't good, well, no one does that, so that's okay. But we end up with this sort of merit mindset. Do you know what merit is? Merit means I can earn a status or I can prove my worthiness by something I do. Merit. It's a merit mindset. I'm, I'm good because I do. And I find a lot of people fall into that trap of the merit mindset. It's like they think they're good and they ignore what's bad, and yet they're still on this idea that I can prove who I am by how good I am. It's the merit mindset. But then I've also found that as people look for a fulfilling life, they tend, we tend, to look towards status and stuff in our search for significance. We look at something that's created and think it tells us something about us if we own it. We look at uh, things and think that it says something about who we are and our significance. And, and here's the thing, when you get caught up in the merit mindset, when you get caught up in thinking about how good you are and proving that you're good, or when you got caught up in the search for significance through stuff, you don't see your need for Jesus. You don't see your need for Jesus. And I think as I talk with a lot of people, I think that's really what's going on. Like Jesus seems irrelevant um, because I'm proving that I'm a good person. Jesus is irrelevant to me. I don't have a need for Jesus because I find my significance in my stuff or my status. Which makes Christians kind of weird. Christians are kind of weird people. Actually, you guys are kind of weird. Because as I talk with you, you don't tell me you're good people. You're like, man, I was a mess. I, I, I was rotten, and I'm still kind of rotten. I, I, I do good things, but... I'm more aware that I don't, of the good things that I don't do or I lack to do or the bad things that I do than the good things. And I think that's what makes us strange as Christians is it's like upside down of what the culture often says. And what I hear you also saying is, you know, I, I went out there and I did try and find fulfillment. I searched for significance and you either say I couldn't find it or I found it and it was empty. 
Like I reached all my goals in my mind, what I thought would give me significance in this life. I grabbed onto it and I sat there for a while and it was empty and kind of depressing. I have a friend who he said he reached it. I won't get into his story, but he did. He made it. And he ended up really depressed when he made it because he thought, is that it? That's it? But Christians see their need for Jesus because they realize life can be quite empty. The search for significance can be quite meaningless. And they also see that they're not good people. They're not good people. And so Christians have learned to give up this merit mindset. Look, there's nothing I can do that can prove that I'm worthy because as I see my life, I'm quite unworthy. I'm, I'm not good. I try and stop sinning, but I can't. And I've given up searching for fulfillment outside of God because there is a hole in my soul that nothing can fill but God. There is a God-shaped void in my heart. And therefore, I need Jesus. I need Jesus because I'm not good. And I need Jesus because there is a hole in my soul. And that's why Christians grab onto Jesus and his cross. The needy embrace Jesus. The needy embrace Jesus and his cross. The needy hold on to Jesus and his sacrifice. And that's what we learned today in Mark 10 and 13 through 13 through 45, is that the needy hold on to Jesus and his sacrifice. Our story starts off with Jesus uh, ministering, and parents are bringing these little children up to Jesus, and the disciples say, well, this is kind of a waste of time, and, he, and, and they are mad at everyone who's bringing the kids, because like, that's not really significant ministry opportunities to spread the mission, and Jesus says, whoa, 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 let them come to me. For these children teach us something about what it means to be needy. It teaches us about some, something about what it means to receive Jesus. Jesus isn't saying that all kids, uh, just because their kids get saved, but he's saying there's something in the way that these children are approaching him that teaches us about what it means to grasp onto him as needy people. Jesus tells us, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And right there, that principle is opposite everything we learn in this world because it's the opposite of merit. Children are approaching Jesus with need and Jesus is saying, that is how you approach me. You don't come showing me your resume or talking about your status or how much respect you have or anything like that. You come just to come and receive from me. And that's so hard because nothing else in the world works that way. You can't show up at a job with no resume. You have to show how worthy and good you are. You have to prove that you're worth hiring. You don't go on a first date and air all your dirty laundry. You put your best foot forward. Might even say some of you lie a little bit on that first date. Because you want, you want to put your best foot forward. It, it, the world works through merit, everything. But you can't bring the merit mindset to Jesus. You can't approach Christ through the lens of, I have something to offer him, you have to come as a child and say, I have nothing to offer but my own need. Bringing the merit mindset to Jesus is utterly offensive to Christ because you have nothing to offer him. He has nothing that you need. You have nothing that he needs. And so all we do is come and embrace Jesus, admit we're needy, 
Admit we don't deserve him. Admit we can't earn anything from him. But just allow ourselves to be given him, as William Lane says. See, the children show us how to put down the merit mindset. But the next character in our story shows us what it's, to be tra- what it's like to be trapped in the merit mindset. What it's like to not be able to see your own need and think that you're self-sufficient. In the next part of our story, a, a wealthy young man approaches Jesus and he says that he kneels down. He's got a little bit of humility before Christ. And he comes and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's not asking right there, you know, how do I get to heaven? What he's saying is, Jesus, um, God has talked about this new kingdom that's coming. I want to be part of it. What must I do? Did you hear it? What must I do? The merit mindset. He's already in the wrong frame of mind. He's missed out the lesson from the children, but Jesus enters in, as he often does with people who are confused. He enters in and talks back with them, and he says, well, you know what you need to do. You need to obey the commandments. And Jesus lists lists out the commandments for him. He gives him the fifth commandment, says, honor your father and mother. He gives him the sixth commandment, do not murder. He gives him the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, do not steal. And then he combines the eighth and the ninth commandment, says, do not defraud. And the young man, the rich young man, looks back at Jesus and says, I've done all these since I was a youth. When I was 12 years old, like other Hebrew boys, I put on the yoke of the law and agreed to obey God's law. I'm following God. I've done it. I'm doing it. And he's made it. He's doing God well, and he's doing life well. What's interesting about this is a lot of times we think that wealth can only come through breaking the laws. But this guy seems to have gained his wealth without defrauding anybody, without taking it from his parents, without stealing it from his neighbor, uh, without doing anything that would break God's law. He seems to be doing God and doing life quite well. Successful at his walk with God, successful at his life. He's good. He's successful. He has no needs. In that culture, wealth was seen as a sign of blessing. In other words, if you had wealth, it automatically meant God had blessed you. And so everyone is looking around at this rich young ruler and going, man, that guy's made it. He's following God and he's got it. But Jesus looks at him and Jesus sees a man who's in deep need. Jesus sees a man who's living in this illusion that he's a good person. Jesus sees a man who's living in an illusion that he's successful. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Isn't that amazing that Jesus can look at someone who has so much uh, self-illusion, who's so confused about who they are, and not shame them, but love them. It says, and Jesus loved them, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. You think you don't need anything, but you do need one thing, and that one thing is everything. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow, follow me. Follow me. As the rich young ruler looks at his life, he sees a life where he's a good person and a life of fulfillment. He has it all. And yet Jesus looks at this man and sees someone who's not good. And not actually free and successful, but enslaved enslaved and in deep need. 
You see, this man has made money his God. He's taken one of God's good blessings and made it into his God. He's keeping the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth commandment, but he's missing the first, the one that all the other commandments hang. You shall have no other gods before me. He's made an idol out of his wealth. He thinks he's following God, but he's put his wealth in place of God so that his life centers around his wealth and the status that it offers him and the freedom that it offers him. Now, money is not a bad thing at all, but it does come with warning labels. Money's not a bad thing at all, but it does come with warning labels. Paul writes to Timothy, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, it doesn't say money is the root of all evil, right? It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money's not bad, but it comes with warning labels. Because when you have it, it's so easy to make it your God. It's so easy to center your entire life around what it offers you, the freedom and status it gives you until you come to this place where you go, I don't need God. I'm good. I'm successful. I'm fulfilled. And this man has made wealth his God. But in doing that, he's actually not a good person because he's not keeping the first commandment. He's not keeping the first commandment. And when you don't keep the first commandment, even if you keep all the rest, you're not good with God. You're not good with God. Our deepest sin in our heart is idolatry. It's that desire to make something good into our God. And that's why it is often so subtle in our lives. Because if I say don't kill anybody, you go, well, I didn't do that. But if I say don't make anything else your God but God, you go, well, I have to think about that. Am I looking to anything else to give me life that only God can? Am I looking to anything else to give me worth that only God can? And when we violate that first command, we're no longer good people. Instead, we're not good with God. And he, as the righteous judge who has created us to look to him for life, stands in judgment over our idolatry. He created life to center around him But life got broke when we centered our lives around other things. Our bodies are separated from our spirit at the end of life. They they decay and they get old. And if we die in that state of separation, we spend eternity apart from God. But not only that, right now, we, we experience a separation from him because we've made other things into our God. There is a God shaped hole in our hearts that we are looking for anything to fill. There's a hole in our soul. And you guys have known that you try and fill it, you never can fill it because nothing fits in there but God. And so not only are we at risk of judgment from God, but our lives end up being quite unfulfilling. We think that thing, whatever it is, gives us freedom. But the reality is that thing really enslaves us. That thing really enslaves us. You think you've got it, but it's got you. It says that disheartened by the saying, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful, for he had great 
possessions. He couldn't imagine his life without his wealth. He couldn't picture what it would be like to stop following his possessions and start following Jesus. You know, there's a way to trap a monkey. Have you ever heard of a monkey trap? A monkey trap is really simple. It's incredibly simple. All you have to do is you get a jar with a thin opening and you put some food at the bottom of the jar. And the monkey will slide his hand through the top of the jar and grab onto the food. And as soon as he makes a fist, he's not able to get his hand out of the jar. You can look it up on YouTube. They'll they'll actually show you monkey traps. But that's like who we are. We reach in and we think, man, I've got it. But it has you. And you can't let go because you can't picture your life without it. And all of a sudden, that thing that you thought would bring freedom actually traps and enslaves you. So let me ask you, for you, what is it? What is that thing that you can't picture your life without? What is it that you look to and say, my life is only meaningful if I have this. My life is only significant if I have this. For, for some of you, it's getting your business to a certain level. Now, there's nothing wrong with your business getting to a certain level, but what happens if that becomes the most significant thing in your life? You're trapped. What if it's a relationship? W- what if it's being considered a religious or spiritual person? What if it's seeking after pleasure and freedom? My life only has significance. My life's only meaningful if I can hold on to a certain level of pleasure and freedom. My life's only significant if my body looks a certain way. My life only has meaning if I'm in charge or if I get in with the in crowd, whoever that is. My life's only worth something if someone is in love with me or if my cause or my ideology, whatever that is, is gaining power. You see, we can take anything that's good and make it into our God. And the trap is that we don't know how to let go. We make that good thing into our God and our lives all of a sudden become trapped and enslaved just like the rich young ruler. Jesus, though I think he's warning about idolatry in general, he is pointing a finger at wealth. And he is saying, there are significant warning labels on riches. And he says to his disciples, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And they're amazed. They're astounded because of what was common in that day. If you have wealth, it means that God has blessed you. But Jesus says, if you have wealth, be careful. Be careful because it's so hard to let go of it so that you can follow me and hold on to me. The disciples are amazed by the warning label that it's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And and Jesus tells them, look, it's easier for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples get what he's saying. They're saying it's very difficult for someone to let go of anything else and hold on to me. And so the disciples say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. See, some of you know that you're so needy that the first time you heard about salvation, you didn't want to let go of whatever you needed to let go of in order to hold on to Jesus. But through the process of God working in your heart, 
through the process of God working a miracle in your life, you begin to see what you were holding on to and how lifeless it was, and you begin to see the good offer that God was giving to you in Christ, and you grabbed onto him. And you know that that was a miracle in and of itself because you know that you were trapped in the monkey jar, not wanting to let go. And really, that's why we go out and share the gospel. Not because our gospel presentation is perfect, but because we believe God will work miracles. God will do the impossible and set captives free, regardless of whether people think they're good or not, regardless of whether people have found significance in this life or not. Peter says, Jesus, we have let go. We've let go of everything. We've taken our hands out of the monkey jar and now we're holding on to you. We, we've lost friends and family and homes and all we have is you. And Jesus says, listen, those of you who have given up things to follow me will be blessed 100 times full. You'll receive new friends. You'll receive new family. God's blended family. You'll receive a community that will take care of you. And when you are physically needy, they will provide for you. And when there's persecution that comes because of what you believe, you will stick together. That was the third song we sang. That was basically, uh, what, what were the lines, Jay? Nothing could separate us from the love of Jesus. And it talked about having each other in the midst of trials and tribulations. We sung that verse earlier. It's not about stuff. God doesn't give us, uh, he doesn't fill us with stuff. He gives us people and a new family. He gives us God's blended family. So here's the thing. Followers of Jesus are so needy that they let go of everything else so they can hold on to Jesus. Because Jesus meets our greatest need and holds on to us. Jesus meets our greatest need and holds on to us through his sacrificial suffering on the cross through his sacrificial suffering on the cross. He meets our greatest need with his great sacrifice. I've been reading through the book, The Shack, recently, and I know that the movie's out there. And, um, you know, I've tried to figure out why is it that that book is popular? I know some of you have read it, and I know it's a controversial book, but I think I figured it out. I, I think that there's something in us that, wants God to give meaning to us in the point of deepest pain in our lives. And that's really what the shack is. The shack is this point of pain in this man's life where God meets him. And God sort of explains to him in this point of pain who God is and gives him meaning to that trial and suffering he went through. And I think that's in all of us. We really want God to come near to our suffering, to come near to us and to help us understand it. But let me encourage you with this. What's more important than God coming to your shack is you bringing your suffering to the cross. What's more important than God coming to your shack is you bringing your suffering to the cross. Because the scripture tells us that God's answer to all pain and suffering in the, in the whole world throughout all history is answered on the cross of Jesus. It's answered through the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus is continuing on in this journey and he, he tells his disciples again what's gonna happen. Three times he tries to explain to them the suffering that he's going to go through. And he tells his disciples, I will be delivered over. 
the leaders of the faith, I will be delivered over to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're the leaders of the faith, and they won't recognize me, the author and perfecter of the faith. I will be delivered over. But not only that, I will be condemned. I'm innocent. I am God in the flesh, and yet I will be convicted as guilty as a criminal. And from there, I will be delivered over. My people will give me up so that I'm no longer, they won't even do the dirty work. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles, the Roman oppressors, and I'm going to die at the hands of our people's oppressors. Do do you hear the suffering that's building? Do you hear the sacrifice of Jesus that, that he knows what he's getting into, and yet he's still heading towards Jerusalem? Jesus then says, and and he won't be mocked, he will be spit on, and he will be flogged. The king of glory, publicly shamed and humiliated. And then Jesus says, and he will be killed. On the cross. Mark 15 basically goes through exactly what Jesus says and shows us that those things actually happened to Jesus. And Jesus still heads towards Jerusalem. Twice Mark tells us they're heading towards Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is heading towards his suffering. It's no accident. He is making a sacrifice. And he knows exactly what's coming. And the irony here is that he's going to the holy city of God, but there God in the flesh will be killed. The very place that was supposed to celebrate the presence of God and looked for the presence of God to come gets God in the person of Jesus, and they kill him. Jesus' suffering and sacrifice is exemplified on the cross. And for us, we need to bring our suffering to the cross because it is at the cross that God sacrificially comes near to all human suffering. It only makes sense through the lens of the cross. Now, I'm not saying that you guys haven't been through some stuff. I know your stories, and I know you've been through things. But the place to make sense and meaning out of all those trials and suffering is to look to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. I know it's hard, and some of us go, you know, that can't be the answer. I I need something a little more personal than that. Um, God doesn't really get what I've been through. But the cross is the answer. You see, Jesus is a Che God, not a Pa God. There was a missionary who went abroad and he joined this tribe to share the gospel with them. And he was trying to help them understand what the gospel was. And he was trying to figure out the word for savior. And he said, what's the word for savior? And they said, Pa. I'm going, okay, Pa. Are you sure that's the word? What, ha- what would happen if like, uh, if I rescued uh, someone who was about to be eaten by a tiger, and they'd say, well, that's, that's paw, that's savior, paw. What would happen if there was someone who's about to fall off a cliff? And they said, well, that's paw. And they say, okay, savior equals paw. But then the man, the missionary, got in a boat with two women from the tribe. And as they were trying to cross the river, the rapids got tumultuous, and eventually the boat flipped. And there he was in the water with them. And he grabbed a hold of the two ladies and he carried them across to the shore and saved them. And he said, what's the word for that? And they said, oh, that's not paw, that's che. Paw is a savior 
who stays a little bit distant and still is able to save you. But Che is a savior who gets in the water with you and pulls you out. God in the person of Jesus is not a paw God. He is a Che God. He enters into the human suffering with us and experiences the worst of it, deeper than you and I will ever have experienced. And he saves us through his presence and his work on the cross. Delivered, condemned, mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed in the holy city of Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters, this meets our greatest need. This is what makes our faith unique. John Dixon was an author who wrote a book about the suffering of God through Jesus on the cross. And he spoke on this at a university. He spoke about Jesus, who was God, fully God, fully man, coming near and suffering on the cross. And and after the lecture, people were allowed to do Q&A and a Muslim man stood up. And the Muslim man said, what you're saying is offensive because God is so holy and reverent and deserves all of our respect that he would never do that. That's so offensive what you're saying about God coming near and suffering. I mean, God wouldn't submit himself to someone lesser than him to experience suffering. That doesn't even make any sense. And John Dixon said he thought about it for a moment and he realized he didn't have an answer. And all he was able to say was, thank you for exposing the unique view of the Christian faith. The preciousness that our God comes near and submits himself to suffering from his creation in order to meet our great need. Dixon's book, I believe, is called God Has Wounds. By his stripes we are healed, by his nail-pierced hands. You know, when you meet Jesus, you will be able to see the marks of suffering on his body. The marks of suffering on his body. So bring your suffering to the cross because it is God's answer to pain and suffering. Why did he suffer? For you. Because our greatest need is forgiveness. Our greatest need is to be reconciled with God. James and John approach Jesus as they're continuing on and they think their greatest need is to ask for glory. Jesus, when this kingdom comes, uh, as we go to Jerusalem and I think you're gonna overthrow Jerusalem, can I be on your right and left? Can we be your main guys? We wanna be up there with you. And Jesus tries to show them you don't, you don't get how this works. You, don't, you still don't get what is going to happen because I came to serve and therefore you as my followers must serve. We're not glory hogs because I have come to serve you by dying for you. In verse 45, Jesus says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, oftentimes we think, Why can't God just forget and forgive? But you all know that forgiveness is much more painful than that. There is always a cost involved with forgiveness. And what Jesus is telling us is that he came to serve us by paying the debt of forgiveness, by paying the cost that we accumulated through our sins. He came to serve us by giving his life 
as a ransom for many. Bryn Brown is a woman who studies shame. And for a while, she, uh, I believe she had walked away from the Christian faith. But she came back. And this is what she said about her return to the faith. People would want love to be unicorns and rainbows. So then you send Jesus and people said, oh my goodness, love is hard, love is sacrifice, love is trouble, love is rebellious, or as Leonard Cohen sings, love is not a victory march, it's a broken hallelujah. Love isn't hearts and bows, it's very controversial. In order for forgiveness to really happen, someone has to die. Whether it's your expectations of a person or your idea about who you are, there has to be a death for forgiveness to happen. In all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. You see, forgiveness is costly. When you forgive someone, it's internally bloody. And when God forgives us, it's bloody. The blood on the floor is not ours, it's Jesus's. It's Jesus's. And through that, you and I receive full forgiveness and total reconciliation with God. The debt for our rebellion against him is canceled in full. Jesus has ransomed us and has given his life to pay our debt. The good news is that God the Son fully became man, was put on the cross, punished in our place. The wrath of God was poured out on him instead of on you. He died, he was buried in a tomb, but he didn't stay there. On the third day, he rose again. And in his new life, you will receive new life. Jesus came to serve you by dying for you. Jesus came to substitute himself for you. He was rejected for you. He was forsaken for you. He paid the debt for you. He took God's wrath for you. He endured the shame of a public execution for you. For you. Not because you were good. Not because you were worthy. But because he loved you. Because he loved you. Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected by man a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. You are not good. You are not worthy, but you are loved. Your greatest need has been met by Jesus through his death on the cross for you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your service to us. We thank you that you underwent so much turmoil and suffering and sacrifice to meet our needs. Oh Lord, thank you that we are fully reconciled to you through what you've done on the cross. Lord, as we see our sin daily, would you help us to look to the cross 
and remind the great sacrifice with which you paid in full all of our debt. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand now with me and sing?